So together we have been in the book of Acts. We've been looking at uh, the Holy Spirit in the birth of the early church. How the Holy Spirit and the early church interacted and what that means for us going forward. We looked at the ascension in Acts chapter 1, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We looked at a couple of the big speeches made by plain and ordinary men at the end of Acts chapter 2 and into Acts chapter 4. And today we are looking at uh, the first martyr in the life of the church. Luke patterns the story of Stephen, um, and more specifically, his trial on the trial of Jesus as we find it in the Gospels. The, the big idea that, that Luke wants us to receive as we read this narrative is that Stephen has been made like Jesus. As Stephen has the charges brought against him, he is empowered in the Holy Spirit to respond like Jesus responded. He was full of power in order to do works and to preach like Jesus. And like Jesus, living uh, into his call brought his own death. It's important that Stephen is patterned after Jesus in the story. Um, and Clark Pinnock says this about both Jesus and Stephen. He says, Jesus knew that he would have to face death the same way he faced temptation, in the power of the Spirit. Though the Gospels do not say this exactly, Hebrews draws out this deduction, that the Spirit who is with Jesus from birth would be with him at the end. The Spirit would help him to say yes to God at the moment of his greatest trial. The Spirit would give him words to speak before his adversaries and help him pray the prayer of relinquishment and surrender to the will of God. As a human, Jesus cried out for the cup to pass from him. But as Spirit-filled, he prayed for God's will to be done. In Gethsemane, he experienced a crucifixion of will before his execution at Golgotha. He said by the Spirit, I am yours, Lord. I have come to do your will. The ultimate outcome of the Christian life is to learn the same level of obedience and of surrender as Jesus so that we can say, I am yours, Lord. I have come to do your will. Uh, at weddings, oftentimes, we read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and, and, and we know uh, starting at verse 4, right? Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, um, because we've heard it at every wedding we've been to since 1982. Um, but that whole section begins at verse 27 of chapter 12, where Paul writes to the Corinthian church, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. 
And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have the gifts of healings, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you the most excellent way. Beginning in chapter 13, Paul says that if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to death, that I may boast but do not have love, I am nothing. Now, it's, it's, this is one of those places where um, we're coming along 2,000 years after the text is written. We read something, we say, that doesn't make any sense. Because as a 21st century North American person, this idea of giving up one's body to death that I may boast, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, martyrdom is something to boast in? Yeah. I mean, like, for the early church, they had discovered this, this truth that, that martyrdom is a gift of the Spirit and martyrdom is one of the ways that God brings the world into right relationship with Him. It's, it, it's interesting, um, and we'll see this a little bit later, that uh, the prayer of the martyr seems to be one that God continually answers, that God hears. And we'll talk about what, what martyrdom looks like for us, because um, for most of us living in Grove City, uh, following Jesus isn't going to mean physical death. But it could mean something else. So track with me. If we go back to the book of Daniel, chapter 3, um, we see, uh, even in the Old Testament, this, this being true, that um, in the book of, of Daniel in chapter 3, uh, we get the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three little boys who wanted to know how to grow in the love of the Lord. But you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are three uh, Jewish boys who go up with Daniel into exile in Babylon. And um, the king and his court realizes that they're really bright and would make really good uh, servants to the kingdom. So they're kind of fast-tracked into leadership. Um, and in chapter 3... Uh, we see that some of the, the people who grew up there in Babylon don't like seeing these outsiders be put, uh, being placed into leadership ahead of them. So they draw up this uh, conspiracy to get them killed. And they say, King, we have a great idea. We're going to build a big uh, monument to you. Uh, we're going to have a daily mandatory uh, moment where people have to worship this this monument to you and of course Shadrach Meshach and Abednego being good Jewish boys say not a chance 
we will not do that. And, and we'll pick up the story in, in, uh, at verse uh, 16 where um, Nebuchadnezzar uh, is already furious and has brought them before and said, uh, why didn't you do what you're supposed to? In verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. For if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. What? Courage! I mean, that's not courage you have, you know, just accidentally. I mean, that is the gift of God to have that sort of courage in the face of that situation. And we see this same courage play out in Acts chapter 7 into verse 8 with Stephen. Uh, where Serena left off in the story, uh, Stephen had just begun his response to the, the allegation of uh, not being a good Jew, um, of, of promoting a Jesus who would tear down the temple and would cast aside uh, the, um, the Mosaic law and the way that they were used to being Jewish. And um, this retelling of the history of Israel that Stephen does in front of the Sanhedrin culminates um, beginning in verse 51 where Stephen says you stiff-necked people your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised you are just like your ancestors you always resist the Holy Spirit was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. And when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth against him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and went, la, 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 la. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him. So you thought I was joking with the la, 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 la. I wasn't. They were, Yeah. They dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing of him. We remember that Jesus on the cross prayed for those who had nailed him to it. 
and Stephen too, as they are stoning him, Stephen prays for the forgiveness of his killers. Robert Wall says it is what and for whom he prays, not simply that he prays, that gives Stephen's death its most profound meaning. As we look through the history of the church, the most powerful prayers the church ever prays are the prayers of the martyrs praying for those who are killing them. It's Jesus' prayer on the cross. It's Stephen's prayer here as he's being stoned. Because you notice what happened there at the very end. There is a man named Saul who looked over it all and agreed with it. Two chapters from now, this man named Saul will become Paul, who's going to write all the epistles and take the gospel into the Greek world. I mean, I, I think you can legitimately make the argument that it is the prayer of Stephen that is the catalytic moment in Saul coming to be transformed coming to change his ways, becoming the Paul who would be one of the leaders of the early church. Now, this can feel really far away for us, right? Because in, in Grove City, there's not um, inquisitors who are knocking at your door, uh, making sure there aren't Bibles in, in your houses. Um, but there are places in the world where that is happening. And wouldn't you know, it's, it's those places where the church is growing fastest right now. The, the blood of Chinese martyrs in the last 50 years has exploded that church. There are more Christians living in China today than there are humans living in the United States. In a country where it's illegal. Where if you're living in one of the big cities, they probably won't kill you, but you aren't going to get a good job. You'll be outcast in society. And if you're outside the big cities, you probably will die. The church is exploding. People are coming to know the, the truth and the life that is offered in Jesus. But that's not what we experience here in Grove City, right? Like, um, I mean, it's so much so that here in, in the United States, there's, um, there's this sense amongst some Christians that, that we need to fight against uh, America becoming less Christian. Like, we need to wage a culture war. Like, we can't have uh, Muslim people in Congress. Congress should be Christian. <sighs> you know, I think that's really wrong-headed. Because the, the reality is that the church has never grown in any sort of meaningful way through coercion. The church is not at its best when we are in power. 
Christianity thrives when it's countercultural. Christianity thrives when it's underground. So I have, you know, colleagues who who they bemoan that things aren't like they were when they started in ministry 35 years ago, where everyone went to church every week, and you know, uh, it was just expected that people would be Christians, and that was that was that was the day. I don't buy that. I think we are we are on the verge of seeing God do something really, really incredible in our midst. The more difficult it becomes to be a Christian in American culture, the better off the church of Jesus Christ becomes. Because it won't be the sort of thing that in our own power we can join the social club that you know the mayor's a part of and you know, most of the teachers at the school are a part of, and, you know, we, we get some social status from being a part of it. No, 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 no. In a world in which Christianity is not sort of the dominant, dominant religious thought practice, those of us who remain a part of it have to learn how to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that, that the church didn't have to 60 or 70 years ago. This is a good thing for us that the world is becoming less Christian. Well, not the world's becoming less Christian, but that our world here in North America is becoming less culturally Christian. Because we have an opportunity to experience dependence on the Holy Spirit in a way that our parents and grandparents never could. Because a day is coming, and it won't be long, where being a Christian is not going to earn any social capital for you. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. Because what we will discover in that season, and what we, if we are wise, will begin to discover even now, is that lives that are lived in dependence on the Holy Spirit are lives of greater joy and fulfillment than the comfortable life that's been offered by cultural Christianity. You know, I'm, uh, I have a, a, a few colleagues here in West Ohio Conference um, who weren't born here. You know, so like Aaron was born in India and Debo was born uh, in Africa as well as, you know, um, uh, Kabamba. And, uh, and it's incredible. Like the most joy-filled pastors that I know, none of them were born in the United States. All of them were born in places where Christianity is hard. Because they learned from an early age that joy comes from the Holy Spirit. And they live into that reality. And that's a reality that, that we, as we learn ourselves, 
will be ever more, um, ever more ready to face the challenges of our life. Uh, Hudson Taylor, um, an early missionary to China, um, he writes that the secret of faith that is ready for emergencies is the quiet, practical dependence upon God day by day, which makes him real to the believing heart. The key to having a life in God that will get us through the hard times is learning how to depend on God now. The key to having a life in God that will sustain us when our own intelligence and strategizing and resources won't anymore is learning how to live that way now. And one of our primary ways of growing into this sort of person is the practice of prayer. Both individually learning how to live lives of prayer, uh, but also together learning how to sit with the people of God and listen for God's voice together. So here in about 20 minutes, um, you know, we're going to sing our, our final hymn. Um, there will be hospitality as there always is. Uh, but I encourage you, go down, grab a cookie and some mini weenies or whatever's down there today. And then come back to the sanctuary and we're going to pray together. Um, no one will ask you to pray out loud, so if that freaks you out, don't worry about it. Um, but together we're going to, to, to huddle up and recognize the reality that we are dependent on the Holy Spirit. And together we're going to listen for the voice of God. We're going to receive the body and the blood of Christ. And hopefully be transformed just a little bit more into a person like Stephen who was like Jesus. Let's pray together. Most holy and gracious God, we thank you that you have brought us into this place. Uh, we thank you that, that you are with us even when it's hard. That your Holy Spirit can teach us how to live in a different sort of way. That the life of joy and fulfillment is the life lived in you. Not chasing more stuff or more power or more notoriety, but in chasing you and you alone. Lord, we thank you that you are helping us to give all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you each day. And that hopefully each day we are learning to give a little bit more of ourselves and to trust you a little bit more. Lord, we thank you and we love you and we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.